Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, May 26, 2021. At EconView, based in Chicago, you'll find independent voices and expert analysis of global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon or Substack. My guest today is Dan Bresnitz, speaking with us from Toronto, and our topic is innovation. Dan is Professor of Innovation Studies at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and of Political Science at the University of Toronto. He is co-director of the Innovation Policy Lab, which I hope to discuss with him today. With all of this, I'm not sure how Dan finds the time to write his incredibly well-researched and path-breaking books, which include his latest, Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World, just published by Oxford University Press. I first heard about Dan almost exactly 10 years ago, back in May of 2011. Both of us had books published by Yale University Press that that particular month. Our mutual editor, Mike O'Malley, thought I should have an interest in Run of the Red Queen, Mike's book about technology competition, or Dan's book about technology competition in China, which of course I did. I was impressed by Dan's analysis and asked him to join um, as a contributor to EconView a couple of years later. I am so happy to have him here with us today. Today we will discuss his Prussian observations a decade ago and what he thinks about China today, as well as his newest book, Don't Expect to Hear What You Have Heard About Innovation Before. Dan has an entirely different approach. Dan, welcome to the Hale Report. So good to talk to you today, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, Well, hopefully next time we'll get together in Toronto or Chicago. Um, But may I start by asking, as I do of of all of my guests, how you first became involved in your chosen field. What was the spark that led you to study economics and research innovation? Sure. So um, I think like like so many of us, but in my case, very much so, I'm a failed philosopher. Uh, Specifically, I'm a failed or uh, a rebel uh, and a political theory. So what happened is that I moved to MIT from Israel. And Israel, uh, in the very early 90s, 93, um, I opened a software company, which was mildly successful. Please take notice that I called it a software company and not the startups, because back then there were no startups and there were no venture capital, or at least no one knew that there is venture capital in Israel. And I came to MIT thinking that what I really want to do, right, I've done business, software, I want to open my mind and, uh, you know, become a political theorist. Um, Very quickly, I found out that I'm not that interested in political theory as it is uh, prescribed in uh, American academia at the time, and I think still today. But political economy is actually the philosophy that I'm looking for Uh, and that I'm truly interested in social change and economics and how you can do that. Um, As I was struggling with all those revelations, um, I went to do a pilot study in Israel 
and realized that the country has completely transformed in about two years that I was not there. When I left, uh, not only there was no venture capital, but the whole business plan of how to build a company was uh, weird. You didn't have money. The banks didn't uh, agree to give you any loans. So what you did is you did consultancy projects in order to create a revenue stream, right? Positive cash flow, so you can invest in your R&D in the hope that you can develop a product. Uh, no, once I came back to Israel, and by the way, when we were very young, 20 to 23, everybody thought they felt that this is a change and they wanted to work with us, but constantly were wondering how come such young people open a software company. Why don't we wait until we're like 40? Uh, I came in back in 99, 2000 to do a different research and found out that um, high school um, graduates could speak with me not only on venture capital, but very uh, with a lot of knowledge about how to write a term sheet. That everybody's now doing startups and the, the whole business model is different and that old people like me at the time, 28, 29, should have had already like two or three startups. I'm just uh, behind the curve. And I started to wonder what happened. And together with the fact that I was then doing research in Taiwan and in Ireland and in Finland, all of those societies had this massive transformation suddenly. Um, I started to compare them and realized that a lot of what we saw as a so rapid change is actually the end of a very long process, usually started through public policy. Not knowing the end result, right? But usually, and it's all around innovation and how you use innovation to transform your economy. And that's, that's how I started. And that's how my first book started. And you discovered me on my second book. When That's right. I, I, yeah, when, when I then went into different regions in China, trying to understand what is happening in China. And I will also add that all of this happened, right, not just domestically, but the globe and the, the global production system changed in that time. And if you don't understand both of them at the same time, you have a problem understanding innovation, economic growth, and prosperity. Right. Well, I really uh, understand where you're coming from. I, too, was a philosophy major at first, <laughs> too. Yeah. And looking at China, um, the, everybody knows about the rapid change there. But you mentioned 1983. 1983, I was visiting Apple's um, international department, and they didn't even have furniture. We sat on boxes. So think about the un unbelievable pace of change, not just in China, but as you mentioned, you have to really pair that with uh, global change and innovation. We don't mm -hmm. appreciate how far we've come, I think. One point that you make in your book that I think is crucial is that innovation is often confused with invention. What are the differences? Is innovation about more than technology? Yes. So, uh, and, and that's a very, very dangerous myth. And it's a dangerous myth that has cost the U.S., many other countries, but we are in the U.S., or at least North America, has cost the U.S. a lot of money, but more importantly, jobs and, and wasted lives. So 
invention is coming up with a new idea, okay? I invent the internal combustion engine. Uh, I invent a vaccine for COVID. It's lovely. I mean, it's really important. Innovation is everything that happens after, is putting that idea into effect in society or in the market, if you will. So, first of all, figuring out how to produce it, then how to produce it better, then how to service it, then how to market it. All of those processes from the uh, first idea into after-sale services and marketing and the constant improvement of them are innovation. It's when the rubber, you know, hit the road, not just when I am in a lab and I came up with a new invention. And I think the situation that we have now with COVID-19 shows that exactly. It is not enough to invent the vaccine. It's even not enough to come with a few million units of said vaccines. We need to innovate all the way through in the production of those multiple kinds of vaccines so they can reach every human on earth. And then we have to innovate again and again and again as we are facing new variants of that vaccine. And again, we have to innovate all across so all humans on earth can have access to the vaccines or else COVID um, will keep you in Chicago and me in Toronto for the foreseeable future. Um, exactly. Exactly. In the medical field, this is, you know, there's a whole uh, field of, of translational medicine. It's not mm -hmm. just about inventing the particular um, new medicine. It's about translating those um, inventions into something that is a business that is usable. So, yeah. It's a, it's a business, it's usable. And as a matter of fact, if you are interested in economic growth and the impact of society, uh, most of the welfare impact happened because of what we might call incremental innovation or improvement. But you and I now talk over the internet on a sophisticated software, which I think is Israeli, um, right. because there have been hundreds of millions of engineering powers devoted to making the CPU faster, making data um, um, telecommunication faster and more reliable, making software algorithm more reliable. So a program like what we're using now that 20 years ago would, or 30 years ago would seems like science fiction because there wasn't any enough computing power to have more than three of those kinds of conversation on earth is now something we do, you know, every few minutes, few billions of people in the world. And think, that's the impact yeah. of innovation. Well, that sounds like hard work and it's not sexy. You use the, the phrase, which I love, techno-fetishism. I can't even say it correctly. Um, have we been duped by the media into worshiping technology and not all of these other things that go into creating um, true innovation? It's, it's not just the media. Um, because we have also been duped, and we now I'm talking about the United States, okay? It's not the world. And Canada. <laughs> and Canada. Well, Canada is failing. You won't include. <laughs> no, no, Canada is failing. So Canada would love to become Silicon Valley. It just fails. But we have been duped by the very particular success of uh, Silicon Valley 
And Silicon Valley is a model. Boston is the same in New York. And that is uh, the stories about a group of free, usually male, young, in their garage, getting money from venture capital and moving from being, uh, you know, Harvard fallouts uh, to the world's richest person in 10 years, which is which does happen. And it's right. important. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's very rare, but it does happen. Um, and we sort of assume that that's the innovation and the only innovation, not just one kind of innovation that we should follow. What we have done is, and that's not the media, that's actually our politicians, our financiers, our venture capitalists, uh, follow the very specific model of innovation, uh, which focus only on the very high end of just after invention, business models that look for financial exit as as big and as quick as possible, meaning also what kind of technology we develop. Um, And all the rest of the innovation, we sort of said, eh, that's not that important. Let's let's Taiwan, China, Korea, Germany, Mm -hmm. Finland, let them do that. We shouldn't care. So... As you describe the Silicon Valley model of innovation and economic growth, what is it about that that has created such local um, economic inequality? Is there something inherent in that model that creates what San Francisco area has become today, which is the richest place on earth, um, I think on a square mile basis, compared to the incredible abject poverty that you also see there on the ground? How yeah, do those w- things come to be? Right. And I would say that this is exactly what happened. Most people I don't think are aware, but this is exactly what happened in Tel Aviv in Israel. Really? Uh, the country, no. Yeah. The country mm-hmm. moved from being the second most egalitarian economy in the greater OECD to being the second most unequal. And not because the rest of the economy tanked, it's just stagnant, but because the, a high-tech and a specific model of high-tech went up. So let's talk about it. The real issue is that if in the past, let's call it before the globalization as we know it, which is a fragmentation of production. So if you now want to make a laptop or a computer or iPhone or whatever, you do it in different stages around the world. In the past, and that's why Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley and not Software Valley, where you had invention in ICT, you was also a places where you then started to produce the first products, employing a very large number of people with very good jobs. Just read the history of HP, read the history of Apple, uh, all those companies. What happened in globalization uh, is all of those activities, if you focus, and that's what happened to Silicon Valley, you focus just on the high end, just on the R&D engineering, and then you offshore everything, two things happen. A, and that's part of the reason it has been done, your profit margin, if you do it well, are amazing. Because as a matter of fact, you have massive returns on assets, partly because you have no assets, right? Uh, If you don't have any capital equipment on your financial sheets because you offshored everything, the return on assets are quite good. Um, but uh, uh, the other thing that then happened is who do you employ 
and you employ only the R&D engineers, sort of a nerd elites, if you will, of Stanford and Berkeley, if we look at Silicon Valley. And, you know, celebrity chefs, if they like them. Lawyers and few financiers. Now dial this up when venture capital also became hyper sensitive to those financial exits. And what you then have now is, and that's the the second stage of this transformation, sort of companies like Google or Alphabet, and after you invest in the whole business model, even if you become a multi-billion company, never going to create any jobs whatsoever in the locale. But everybody who is involved in that industry gets amazingly good wages and a lottery ticket, which is stock or stock options in case you have an IPO. Everybody else is now out of the game. And that's the thing that we have forgotten. People still look at Silicon Valley as if we are in the 80s until the beginning of the 90s. Silicon Valley and venture capital and all those industries have changed. They create massive global companies with a huge amount of jobs and growth, just not in Silicon Valley. One thing I noticed in both of your books, um, you seem to love literature. Um, In Running with the Red Queen, you referenced Through the Looking Glass. And in your new book, um, themes from The Wizard of Oz are quite prominent. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Dorothy um, and her chant, there's no place like home. You know, there's no place like home. You seem to have um, this real sense of community and the human need for community. And the impression I get it from what you're saying is that this worship of startup culture um, by other by other locations has resulted in um, shortchanging themselves. Uh, other economic hubs shouldn't be following that startup model of Silicon Valley. They should be doing what they do best and be proud of that. Am I interpreting um, you correctly? Um, you're, that's quite correct. I wouldn't say they should do best of what they do best, but okay. they should figure out, right? We're talking about innovation. Right. They should figure out what stages, right? Up until now, we focused only on Silicon Valley. So we can talk about other stages that happen, right? How do you actually get a new product into or improve product into the hand of American consumers? Uh, they should focus on that. Um and they should figure out in which industry they can excel, in which stage, and what kind of skills, financial institution, all the rest works in order for them to excel in those kinds of innovation. That's one. Uh, and by the way, if you look at those stages, they create more local prosperity. They might create less glamour, but they create a lot more local prosperity. And I'm also willing to argue, and I can give you an example, quite a lot of geopolitical power. Uh, Just look, for example, in semiconductors and see that the American government uh, under Trump and still under Biden are basically begging a Taiwanese company to open semiconductor, silicon uh, manufacturing facilities in the United States because we have lost the ability to do that. Uh, And without this ability to do that, we can't even produce cars. Uh, so that's one. The second is, um, it's almost impossible to imitate Silicon Valley. 
We can have a big debate about why, but it's partly it's because you already have Silicon Valley. And the last but not least, let's assume you're successful. Do you really want, I mean, is your vision of your communities to look like Tel Aviv and San Francisco, where either your uh, software engineers enjoying uh, French, very expensive French wine, or you are the cleaner living in her car or five hours commute away? I mean, is that your vision for your community? And if it's not your vision for your community, because I don't think many community leaders and policymakers want that vision, then how about thinking about other options? And most places just, I don't know why, just don't think they have a different options, which is strange. Well, there's some issues. For example, the Ford plant here in Illinois is laying off workers again because they don't have enough semiconductors. And so the attempt to bring back manufacturing to the U.S. hit a snag they didn't expect, which um, leads me to my question about your four stages of production, because I think it's really critical to understand those four stages and where you fit in to them. Can you... um, uh, describe them and explain them uh, to us. Sure. Let's do a uh, trip down how a product is being made. Okay. And through that, we can also understand what are the stages. So Great. we or, already talked about the stage of novelty, of, of new things, right? The very first stage where you come with invention and the f- tr- may try to make it into a product. Okay or define that product, like Silicon Valley, Tel Aviv. By the way, there are other options to excel in that stage, which are not VC-driven, but let's leave them on the side for a while. When you then move and you say, okay, I have now designed my product, be it, you know, and you telecommunication device or a very, very, very high-end, fashionable woman luxury shoe. It's lovely. Uh, But uh, how do I actually make it into a real product? And there comes a design, prototype development and production engineering. And if you follow products now in the world, and I have not mentioned luxury woman shoes just for fun, if you actually follow this industry like I did, you will start to see that different places which are not New York or Paris, where you sort of have those amazing fashionable, but the place <laughs> that actually know how to, this is a lovely design, but a woman actually needs to wear it for hours. How do I make, and, and it needs to cost X amount of dollars. How do I make it this? How do I even think about production? Are places that are really successful. The third stage is what I call second-generation product and component innovation. So if, if you think about your iPhone, for example, or if you use a different smartphone, it has 10,000 different components. All of them need to start working. All of them needs to be constantly being improved upon. And if you look at the places Uh, that do it very, very well, you will see that they're unbelievably innovative um, and are actually much more sustainable. So we already talked about Taiwan. I think your daughter is now stuck in Taiwan, for example. That's right. That's (laughs) Taiwan is is like the the queen, if, if you want to, or the king or the empress of doing that 
and actually knocking down American companies that first invented those products from the crown of the most successful company in that area. And last but not least, right, as, as the, those 10,000 components come, some of them are with materials that is the very first time that a human ever tried to produce anything with them. And now you need to produce those things and be able to move from, you know, five units to million units to 10,000 units, right? Constantly moving a massive amount of the nation. And that's, that's really what made Shenzhen, you know, so powerful. Uh, the innovation and the ability, innovation in production and assembly and figuring new ways to do that. And, and we've, it, it's actually was an American power, if you will, an American innovation capacity. We even called a whole era based on innovation in production. It used to be called Fordism and Fordist, right? Speaking about your car manufacturer. Um, his real invention was not just in the car, but also how you produce it. And the Taiwanese, and then this was taken away from the by the Chinese, now master those kinds of innovation. And now you can look at every product that you have in your house, and you can see how it is now produced and serviced uh, in very distinct stages as it moves around the globe. Every place that excel in one of those stages is highly innovating, even if we don't recognize it, until in the end you get a product that you and I can buy. And those are those four stages, novelty, design, uh, prototype development, second generation product and component innovation, and production and assembly. And that's why, because this has become globally, globally divergent, um, uh, it's very difficult for um, supply chains to be replicated in other places. So uh, how do you look at the political aspect of that now? You know, do we, should we be so reliant on other countries, for example, as part of this production nexus? So now you ask me a question which is about political. I'm putting my other hat, right? And that right. is the hat of mm -hmm. resiliency and politics. So it's, 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 it's a question that is on both sides of security, as a security as a business and a security as a nation. And I think COVID, again, taught us two lessons. A, uh, security is much more comprehensive than what we think about. And it's really lovely to be the place that invented N95 masks, but if you no longer know or being able to produce them en masse when you need them, or ventilators, um, you have a problem when you have a pandemic. And it's actually not very easy uh, to reshore, if you will, valves production. And even harder to, once you reshore it with injection of money, to keep that in uh, because you fight against the whole system of procurement. So here is what if, if I was a CEO of a big company now seeing, you know, we have a pandemic, we have massive geopolitical problem on the horizon. I mean, they're already here, but we try to avoid them. Uh, an earthquake on the ocean uh, near Japan 
have demonstrated what natural disasters can do. To supply chains, particularly. To supply yeah. chains. And mm-hmm. we have climate change. Uh, right. So we should just assume more of it. And I would say, okay, I re- what I don't like is not just that it's not all in the United States, because I don't think it's feasible that everything will move back to the United States. What I'm really worried about is that we are too much of those activities happen in a very tiny region of the world. So we actually no longer have global production chain. We have bottlenecks around the greater China area, period. The attack surface is very concentrated. Yes. And Mm -hmm. and that's a vulnerability. It's almost like if you remember the financial crisis that we had in 2008, everybody, everybody thought it's diffused. No, it's not diffused. It came back in the other door because... Because it's a system. Um, What I would uh, work on is figuring out how to diversify those global production networks. How to make sure that more of them, so to make them more regional. So if I was now the president of the United States, I would not necessarily want or think it's feasible to kick out China or to move everything to the United States. But I would like to see uh, every critical product uh, produced to a large percent, so up to 15 to 20% of global production, move to a supply chain or network, if you will, which is around North America, around Europe. Because even if the China and US keep on being good friends somehow in the future, it's enough that one big earthquake happened in southern China and we no longer have things that are necessary for us to survive. And that does not look like smart thing to do for me, to me, both as a businessman, but also as a politician. And of course, as an American citizen, it, I mean, that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. From a national ed- point of view. From yeah. a national point of view. And added to that, because we are a very big country, the United States, and also Canada, if you will, North America, we can actually have multiple regions or cities that do innovation around different stages of production. Ohio, which you mentioned, should not look like California. I mean, I have no idea why Ohio wants to look like California. I mean, I I understand the weather is much better, but let's assume we can't (laughs) fix that, right? Right. Unless we have more climate change. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, but still, then, you know, surfing on the ocean might be difficult in the foreseeable A bit, future. Yeah. Yes. So why not figuring out where Ohio can innovate in different stages of production? Also knowing that it will create a very large amount of really, really good jobs, sustainable good jobs, uh, to Ohioan, if if I may call them that way, um, and increase the resiliency of American businesses. And and uh, I want to give you just one little example uh, with Operation Rap Speed. Everybody thinks about the vaccines, but one of the most interesting things that they did is create the production of those new veils in which you could put the Moderna and the Pfizer in you know extreme low temperature. This was done by a company called CIO2. Anyone who knows chemistry should understand what this is. Uh, 
I'll give you a hint, Silicon, um, which is actually located in Alabama. Um, completely transforming how you do medical vials, glass, um, producing a very large number of sustainable, good, high-end production and innovation jobs in rural Alabama. And, you know, um, the freezers that were used um, were from a family company in Ohio. Um, you know, by the way, I was so fascinated by your history of Cleveland. I had no idea that at the turn of the, of the last century, Cleveland was such an innovation hub and did exactly what you're talking about, too. They were very prosperous, um, just great economic history. But, Dan, if I make you mayor of Toronto or of Chicago, bringing this locally from the national point of view, what policies would you, um, would you deploy? What is the way to go about this that, you know, that, that could recreate the Clevelands of the past? So f- first of all, um, if, I mean, Chicago and Toronto are, are different. And the reason is that the first thing that I'll do is I figure out what are my strengths. So, uh, and here I'm not just like what industries I already have, but what kind of activities I can excel at, no matter what the industry I'm in. That solving that problem is, then I will figure out, um, if you will, um, what kind of institution, or, or instead of calling it institution, what kind of public goods or semi-public goods that industry needs, be it uh, skills and human skills, be it flow of information, be it connection, but here, that's why I said institutions, institutionalized connection to the global production network. But as a politician, I can do, I can work on a systemic way. And of course, what are the business models of those kind of companies? I want them to excel. And do we have the financial vehicles, if you will, to help? So um, if you read the history of Cleveland, which is true about every sort of uh, booming innovation, if you will, uh, from uh, England to France to Germany to Cleveland to Silicon Valley, there was invention in venture finance. I call it venture finance specifically because it's not venture capital. Venture capital, as we know it, is the latest of such financial innovation of how to channel money to those activities. We already know that the activities that I'm talking about cannot use modern venture capital. Modern venture capital cannot make money on them. And the last thing that many of those, as you said, family-owned companies want is some financial, excuse my language, uh, I don't know how to call them, but let's call it a megalomaniac financier uh, wanting 50% of her company because she uh, wants a financial exit in five years. Instead, what they can offer is I will increase production and profits sometimes by double digits over 20 years if I under the right conditions and I can repay my loans and debts. And we have not yet figured this out. What is the new vehicle for American company? I mean, Taiwanese have figured this out. We didn't. What is the new vehicles that would allow those kinds of American companies and startup 
old and new, I should say, to excel and scale up and innovate in those With, stages. Without vulture capital, as they call it. With Without vulture capital. Or, mm -hmm. to be very honest, the best VCs are, are doing what they should do. But their business model just does not work with a family that create the um, company that create refrigerators. I mean, the family that create refrigerators does not offer them a financial exit of more than 1,000% in five years. It will never happen. Well, that used to be the purview of the traditional banking system. But maybe one of the issues as a result of the financial crisis is that their capital requirements became um, you know, uh, larger and they became more risk averse to doing this. So even though interest rates are at historic lows, that doesn't mean that that family owned business can access that capital at those rates. Absolutely. But I don't think it's a financial crisis. I think the financial crisis is the end. So if you look at the debts and loans of big American institutions, you would see that by the time the financial crisis happened, they moved significantly more into individuals versus business. Mm -hmm. So, but this is, yeah. And then there is a questions of why, and, and I think we can answer that, why banks thought it's A, more profitable and B, much safer to uh, invest much more of their money in loans to individuals, be them either mortgages right. or student loans. Right. Let's not forget student loans. That's one. The second is the And issue. credit cards. <laughs> and, and credit cards, yes, right, of right. course. The second issue is that in order to excel in those kinds of investment, you actually have to have knowledge of the industry. Okay? That's part of why the best VCs are good. They actually know what they're talking about in technology. There used to be and there still are in Europe and other places, bankers that know this. They know their industry. They know who to give loan to. Uh, American multi oversized banks no longer have the people that know how to do that and no longer think that it's worthwhile to invest in those people. And by the way, not just American banks. So uh, uh, the what is now called Israeli Innovation Authority. It used to be called the Office of Chief Scientist, for those of, a, of, of you and your listener who know the history of Israel, um, realize that and start to open a program in trying to create those kind of financiers by not just giving money or um, loan guarantees, but giving an education to both the bankers and the manager of the companies so they relearn how to work together and make money for both sides. Well, that brings me to education, which is the other issue. You know, we used to talk about China becoming um, old before it became rich. But in the United States, we're rich, but we're becoming more and more uneducated or people don't have the right kind of education to get a job that will give them, you know, a good life. How do you see that part of the picture? Um, how is that? How could that be solved? Is 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 perhaps distance learning that was accelerated by COVID? Could that help in some way? There's been a lot of talk about the um, one of my favorite subjects, community colleges, and how they could be transformed into 
to really job training uh, institutes as well. How do you look at education as part of this piece of this so first, puzzle? Uh, yeah. yeah, the first thing I'll say about education, which we keep on talking about, uh, but um, no one, I mean, we talk about it, but somehow it never transformed. And that is, um, you do really need to have a long life education. It is really lovely to have a college degree, but it's usually not very helpful. And it's definitely not that helpful if you had it 25 years ago, unless you can't steal it. In the past, American companies were willing to invest in the education of their workers, usually in-house, throughout the life, the career of a worker. And by the way, in almost, not all, almost all levels. So not just the managers over white collars, but also blue collars. This has been broken. I mean, the statistics are there. There is a very good book by Nicola Lau, uh, if you're interested in what happened. And she also offers a solution, um, which we can debate that solution, but it's there. But uh, what really is needed is a new political deal, not between the community college. I mean, the community college and the universities can play a part, but between business and their workers. And as long as business don't re I mean, they talk the talk, but don't really think that keeping the workers, all workers, constantly educated and upskilled, uh, but instead put all that risk on the individuals, uh, we are going to have a problem um, and we're going to have increasing inequality because some individuals have the capacities to do that and take care of themselves, but some don't. And as a matter of fact, most don't. And now, you know, jobs in the manufacturing sector um, uh, have increased, but actually manufacturers, and I know here in Wisconsin and so forth, they, they can't find people to hire. They can't find people to hire, correct. Uh, partly because there are so many uh, years in which you didn't hire. So uh, those skills no longer exist because you haven't produced them. So it will take time. And indeed, speaking about what I would do maybe as a mayor of Chicago or maybe a smaller town, is I'll figure out will map, and that's another thing that should happen. And the China, since you mentioned, has done it extremely well, is I will map the supply chain, realize where I have gaps, realize what skills I need for my supply chain, and figuring out ways of how to ensure that those skills exist and that, that there's an options for people who wish to have those skills. And by the way, it has been done, it, it, it's being done in the United States, but on a, in a small regional um, uh, scale. Um, North Carolina, for example, has done it very, very well in biotechnology. And if and what is interesting in biotechnology in North Carolina is not necessarily the very high-end R&D, but the North Carolina leads in biotech production. And partly because we have created a system of creating the skills that you need in order to produce, you know, and manufacture, if you will, biotech. 
this adversity part of the picture, too, is um, Neil Ferguson had a piece, I think, in Foreign Affairs recently about the superior pandemic performance of Taiwan, South Korea, Israel. And he ascribed that to a kind of general paranoia of, about survival that exists within their societies. Um, but they are also very, very innovative. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize that uh, uh, Israel's innovation began with Charles de Gaulle's embargo on weapon sales back in, I think, 1967 60, or so, right? 67, just before yeah, the 67. Just before yeah. the war, yeah. Are those kind of events, do they have an impact on whether or not a country or a region becomes innovative? Yes. but Threats, um, in other words, yeah. Yeah, there, there are. And there's a whole set of theories, of family of theories of how you need those kinds of threats and about how, we, how those threats need to be both uh, external, but also internal, because if they're not internal, you don't make the fruits of uh, innovation wide. Um, for example, there's a book by uh, my friend Mark Zachary Taylor from Georgia Tech about the politics on innovation. And he shows that countries that have lost that uh, also lose innovation, and partly because innovation constantly, by definition, create winners and losers. And when you don't have this paranoia, the political power of the losers can become so strong that it will start to, or the incumbent, will stop innovation. Um, however, that being said, I don't highly recommend uh, having a little nuclear war in the United States just to create more paranoia. No, thank would, you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would also say, uh, you know, as somebody who lived in both Canada and the United States, that the United States is quite nicely paranoid okay. uh, on that stage. I don't think we need more paranoia. I don't know if you have looked at politics lately, but I don't really think we need more paranoia. What we need is leaders that actually have a strategy for innovation, growth, and, and preferably innovation growth that leads to sustained local prosperity, because otherwise what you have is a massive political backlash against innovation and anything else, because people say uh, you are taking my tax-paying dollars. I have given you... We used to have a social contract in this country. I did my part. And now what you're telling me is that I have no chance in the American dream. And even worse, my kids will be worse off than me. Right. And That's what, the nightmare. Mm -hmm. That's a nightmare. And by the way, mm -hmm. it's unfortunately true to too many Americans. So what we really need is some kind of uh, leadership and economic plan on both sides that understand what is innovation, which is the only engine of growth, but what is innovation? It's not just Silicon Valley. What do we need in the United States and how to put all those actors together uh, to create local prosperity uh, for the long term? If right. we don't do that then politics will lead to a backlash against innovation. And I think you've already seen it. I mean, just look at, at just, just look at what people think about those vaccines, right? Which are saving life daily. Uh, and we should just expect more and more of that unless we can figure out ways uh, to show that innovation 
is actually the key to the future of economic prosperity for all Americans, not just graduate of Stanford. You know, one of my key takeaways of your book is, you know, and I've, um, is how local innovation is. All politics is local and successful innovation. People assume that China's policy was a national policy, but actually it took place in Southern China primarily and along the coasts. Um, and a really good example of, of, I think your concept is right now, Xi Jinping has a pet project in Hebei province and it's to create this city for innovation. And guess what? It's not working because it wasn't indigenous. It wasn't, there's no local motivation. It's Beijing telling them what to do. So it can't be mandated even from heaven. It can't, <laughs> there's another aspect, you know, um, to it. So I just think that's a terrific, really insight in your book as to how, and that means that all of us need to get more involved too in our local governments. We can't expect just Washington or Beijing or Brussels to do these things, you know, for us. We have a responsibility as well. We have a responsibility. And as a matter of fact, we shouldn't even assume that Brussels or Washington uh, know how to do it for us, if you will. So uh, if I'm Pittsburgh, why would anyone in DC know better than me, whatever local condition, who are the actors and what plans should I have for local growth, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, DC can do a lot to help me by changing rules, regulation, giving me resources. But if I don't, get my act together, so to speak. Uh, yeah. And, and here, what I'll say, um, and, and as you said, in China, what really happened was a lot of local experimentation, is what I'll say that in excelling in each stage, so let's assume you figure out that stage of production you want to and the, the, how where you want to innovate. There are basically four fundamentals that you have to think about when you devise that plan. So first of all, we are talking locally, but globally. So you have to figure out the flows of local, global knowledge, demand, and inputs, where you fit, where you want to fit in the future, and how to unsituate yourself, institutionalize those flows. So you get the knowledge, if you will, and the demand, and if you need inputs, but you're also the place that can send them. Uh, you need, as we already talked on the supply and the creation of public and semi-public goods, be there, you know, R&D, to workers, to finance. You want to think about the local ecosystem that actually reinforced firm-level benefits for your kind of innovation. So Silicon Valley is actually unbelievably good in that, but it does it for those startups. And then, because the world constantly change, you need to think about the co-evolution co of a previous three uh, fundamentals and the role of public policy. So, uh, to give you an example, if you're, because you mentioned, if you're Israel in 67, and you have zero or one or two civilian technology company, your public policy is based on that and figuring out how to create those. You move 
and you almost have no civilian R&D. You fast forward to 2010, when you have the largest number of startups on NASDAQ after the US, uh, the highest in the world VC per capita. The highest in the world civilian R&D. Mm-hmm. The role of public policy is not the same. Right. Right? So this ability to constantly, and that's by the way, since you mentioned Chinjen, that's exactly what the city government of Chinjen and what the provincial government of, of Guangdong have done amazingly well in China, uh, what to a certain degree California and at least the areas around San Francisco and the Bay Area have done, uh, what Israel have done, what Taiwan has done, is figure out what is their model and constantly tweaking it so it can be sustainable, okay? And that needs, we need to remember that. The winning recipe for 2021 for Chicago, assuming it's successful, meaning that the winning recipe for Chicago 2031 is very, very different. You talk about also something you call um, structured uncertainty. I think that's a really interesting concept. How does this apply to, you know, how is that part of the formula for success? So we are now we are now moving back to China, just right. to, to, <laughs> to put it there. And my claim was that uh, uh, China and the institutional condition in China is structured uncertainty, uh, which I think... Uh, the Chinese government, as we speak, making sure that I'm correct, even when I've, I started to suspect myself. Um, structured uncertainty. So usually you have institutions and rule of the games, right? If we're an economist and we're now talking, they create certainty. You know what is the right outcome. You know what is the right practice. You know how to reach things. What happens in China is... Uh, there, they exist there and you create them both formal and informal to lower uncertainty, right? So when you enter a room in a business, you know what you're supposed to do. In China, because of the way it is structured, because after all, it is still controlled, very much controlled by a Chinese Communist Party, which is now also authoritarian and run by one person, Um that's not at all clear. What is A, what is legal and not legal to do? And what are the desired outcome? Just look, for example, at uh, Tencent or Alibaba. Or the anti-PO, yeah. And you Mm -hmm. would say that this guy has basically have done everything that you would want if you want, you know, to success. And so, yes, he, he, he said some things in a democracy wouldn't nobody would care about, but he said a few things about the financial system, right? But just before the IPO, you could read The Economist, The Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York, they said that China is now the world leader in fintech and we should all learn from China. On that moment... The leaders the Chi- read those stories too, I think. <laughs> yes, the Chinese said, um, that's actually not what we want for China. Okay? 
And that structured uncertainty, you really have no clue. Uh, and when you really have no clue, the successful entrepreneurs, and our friend Jack Ma was very successful until very recently, always needed to handle this, right? Very intricate dance. And one of the things you do is you don't invest massive amount of R&D in producing completely new products uh, which is the most uncertain thing, right? Innovation, by definition, is very risky and very uncertain. The more fundamental, the more the closer you are to novelty, novelty, the closer you are uh, to very long-term R and D that you don't even know it. A, you don't know if it will succeed, and B, you don't know if you know the consumer will actually want your product or services in the end. You don't risk it. What you do is you focus, and that's what Chinese company has done on more incremental, on production innovation, on things that you know will always increase your you know, bottom line profits. And in the case of China, the jobs that you Right, especially jobs. So is China still really, though, running with the Red Queen as it was 10 years ago? What about Huawei? And is China trying and landing on, the, on Mars and so forth? Has China reached another stage where it's trying to run ahead of the Red Queen now? It's it, not it, content. Yeah. It might, but let's let's talk about Huawei, for example. Part of the reason why Huawei, let's just also remember where Huawei has succeeded. Uh, Huawei has succeeded in what we called fifth generation mobile technology. We called fifth generation for a reason. It's the fifth generation. They have not invented mobile technology. Uh, they have become unbelievably good in fifth generation mobile technology based a lot. They've done a lot of R&D. They're amazing in that, but based a lot on the fact that they know how to produce stuff, uh, especially hardware. And uh, to be honest, there's just no, no American company actually no North American companies that can even compete because we have lost all of them, okay? Where China can really lead the world, and where I think it will soon lead the world, is in the areas in which uh, China, rubber hit the ground in China. So if you look about energy, for example, and you look at green technology and all the rest, China has uh, every year add more to electricity grid than I think the whole grid of France last time I checked, now maybe even more. Uh, they, their ability to play with new green technologies is order of magnitude above us. Um, and the company and the government is behind it. Uh, and if China, I mean, not if, since China is the world's biggest green tech market uh, and where those innovations first are being used, I would suspect that in green technology, we will soon see, if we have not already seen, Chinese companies that are definitely leading the edge. Um, where it is not clear, and not because the Chinese can't do that. Let's remember that Zoom that we use, and before that WebEx, 
is are all Chinese that came to the United States. But the institutional system of China, if I was an entrepreneur in China that wants to make a lot of money and not end up in jail, I would be very, very, very careful in introducing completely new products on anything that the state uh, seems to uh, think is political. So no media, I'll be very careful in anything to do with telecommunication, definitely not finance. It seems now that the uh, realtors also might not be loved if they got too much power. Uh, and that's still limits the ability, and the, uh, not the ability, sorry, the, the will of Chinese companies and the managers that don't really like the Chinese jail. Um, to invest in, in really leaning the world. Well, the other aspect that you're seeing increasingly is um, China's interest in creating technological standards and a separate set of techn... They're saying, why does the United States get to decide these things? This should be something China should have input on. Um, but right now, it, what, it, what could happen? Is this going to create some incredible inefficiencies? Are we going to have... Two internets, for example. Um, China's building out Iran's internet, and it will be different than everything else. Is the world going to bifurcate, maybe because of political considerations, in a technical way? And how could that change the future of innovation? So, so two things. Uh, and again, uh, I, unlike what people might think, China actually won the standard games fair and square using our rules. They have understood the importance of standards. They have filled this global standard setting bodies with Chinese engineers, with Chinese companies. They have helped their engineers and the companies, sometimes by the way, even high school kids, to understand technology standard setting and view that as a priority. And they control it. Uh, and the United States can fight, if it so wishes, and American companies in those standard bodies. But just look at the number of Chinese that are now the head of, you know, standard setting groups or the whole organization itself. Institutional capture, right. Yes. That's and happened. by the way, yeah. I am sorry. Uh, it's not because they're evil. It's because they're smart. And because we just, we, we, we administration, if you will, was either asleep on the wheel or just misjudge their ability. Now, that's one. So there's a way to, to change it. We can also start playing with standard games and just assuming that companies, American companies can do it by themselves. They can't. It's a collective, it's a political collective game. We let our companies go at it by themselves. China helped those companies coordinate, guess who won? I mean, that's politics. If you have better coordination ability, you will win a political game. So we need to coordinate. The second thing is, uh, and there I will be controversial, there is a problem with technology standards. There's a lot of really great things with technology standards, right? Once you create a standard, you can innovate around it and everything collect. But once you set a standard, you also froze technology. Okay, and throws it to a different trajectory. So 
Uh, I am not at all sure that for the rates of overall innovation and ability to, to innovate and create new things, it's such a horrible, horrific thing that there will be more than one or two standards. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's... Sorry. I just... I, <laughs> I, I like I, that. I, 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 I read economics. I was told that competition is good. It's and good. I agree. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Competition is good. And having everything around one standard control and decide by a group of companies who also happen to own all the patents does not seem to me like highly innovative competitive things. So having two or three competing standards on, you know, Might almost be a good everything, thing. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Well, I think it's important that you began life as an entrepreneur <laughs> because I think it gives you a, a different uh, vantage point. Um, I wanted to ask you too, what are what is the innovation lab and what do you do there? What are the key activities and what projects are you working on? Yeah. So let me just say two things. Uh, and and I, I want to say that because I, I also want to thank the people who allow me to do that. So first of all, uh, I'm the monk chair of innovation studies um, in the University of Toronto. But the other thing that I've done, and by the way, I've started it uh, one of my, there was two other co-directors. Uh, one of them is Suzanne Helper, who is now back at the White House um, Council of Economic Advisors. And the other is Amos Zahavi from uh, Tel Aviv University, but we now are a group from all around the world is CIFAR, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research Network on Innovation, Equity, and the Future of Prosperity. And we have all the way from engineers to lawyers, through financiers, geographers, whichever you want, thinking about exactly what we've talked about for the last hour. So that's one. In the Innovation Policy Lab, what we do is we are one of the biggest group of affiliated faculty in the school. And again, all the way from economics to law, engineering. Um, And we think about not just innovation, but the policies that leads to innovation, okay? And we think about policies that lead to effective innovation policy from terms of growth and creating more innovation and profit, but also uh, issues of you know, health innovation, uh, how, what kind of policies lead to more or less inequality, which is a question that does not ask enough, I think, in the United States. I mean, we sort of assume that if it creates a lot of profits, it's by definition good. Question is, can you have something that create the same amount of profit, but actually also create a lot of more equity? We almost never asked. So we also do that. And we teach, and I think that's very important, we teach the next generation of leaders who then go and become policymakers in North America, but also in Asia, La America, all the rest. And the last but not least, we educate. And when I mean we educate, unlike teach, is we talk with policy makers on a regular basis from North America, Latin America, Africa, Europe, Asia. Uh, we try to be the think, the thinking 
I don't want to call it think tank because think tank is this. I don't like think tank. Got some negative connotations recently. Yes, it's it's the thinking lab for anyone who is interested in innovation policy in order to improve our growth, economy, and society all around the world. Wonderful. What's the website address so our listeners could see the Monk School? One word. Dot utoronto dot ca forward slash IPL, as in Innovation Mm -hmm. Policy Lab, forward slash. Thank you for that. So I hate to ask you what's next for your next, because you just finished this book. Is there a new book on the horizon for you? There is a new book on the horizon. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) With my old friend uh, and partner in crime, Amos Zahavi. Mm Mm-hmm who, if he was any other person, would have killed me for writing the book uh, that we have talked about before I wrote the book with him. And that book is on what uh, we called, him and I, distribution-sensitive innovation policy. So can you think about innovation policy and also figure out what there will be, their um, distribution outcomes? And part of the reason we want to think about it is because neither him nor me actually understand what inclusive innovation really means. We think it's a very fuzzy concept, but we do understand and we do think that innovation, the way that you do innovation policy actually impact your level of inequality. And it's time that we create innovation policies that understand that and figuring out how you can achieve both economic growth and equity and prosperity. Um, uh, the key, if, if somebody, you know, won the taste, the key paper was published in Research Policy, and it's called DSIP, uh, Distribution Sensitive Innovation Policy. A- and this is also, you know, the work that I do with CIFAR um, and the group with CIFAR. So this, in, in my mind, this is a first book, and that's if up until now I really wanted to figure out how to do innovation policy and growth and create more innovation and innovation in real places, I started to say, what does that mean for local leaders and, and, and supply tools for local leaders, how to ensure that their own community can grow? I'm now thinking that the next challenge for all of us is to how to create growth trajectories, which by definition mean innovation and policies that create better society for as many people as possible. And it sounds very flaky, but it's not. It's it's really, you have to understand who is employed, who is not employed, whether those innovation help us, who, who those innovation help to, and how you finance the innovation to create business models that create more jobs. It's, 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 it's actually not cutting-edge science. The problem is nobody has thought about it until now. Well, wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, innovation in Real Places, I think it's really an incredibly optimistic book. You write, there's more than one path to prosperity. We all don't have to crowd into Silicon Valley or Austin or even Miami to achieve happiness. Um, I think your definition is is um, of innovation is very broad and what you just spoke about and inclusive or seeking to be inclusive as well. Um, so I, I 
I highly recommend it. I hope everybody listening reads the book. I think this has given you a little taste of really what some of the wisdom is that that Dan has about this subject that he's devoted his life to. So we're looking forward to the next one and to further conversations. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. Is there any last thing you'd like to tell us that should be on our horizon? Yes. So Thank one you. thing that I want everybody, local leaders, community leaders, the president of the United States, whoever, the governor of Ohio, when you design an innovation policy, I want you to ask yourself one question first. Why? What is my vision, right? Innovation policy is a tool. I want my city, region, community to look like X in 10 years. Now let's design the innovation policy that would lead you there. And the, the, the answer is, I want to be personally rich is unacceptable in my view. Right. Right. Not the greed. Question, <laughs> it's, right. it's, greed is nice. You should have greed. But why? when you tell me that you want to have innovation policy, I want to understand where you want your community to be 10 or 15 years from now. And now you and I can go back and reverse engineer the innovation policy that might lead you there. Copying what the consultants and the media tells you it's lovely. Uh, it might get you reelected, but it will definitely not lead you anywhere because you are now going into the ocean with no map. Okay. Well, th- I hope they're listening to you. Again, thank you. Um, Dan Bresnitz is a professor at the University of Toronto and his book, Innovation in Real Places, highly recommended by all of us at EconView. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you to the people behind the scenes, um, Dan, at your place and mine, who make all of this possible, our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our producer, Sam Fu. Uh, please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you and goodbye. See you soon. Bye.